Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Welcome to Killer Women Podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with more than 4 million listeners. I'm your host, Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Stacey Willingham. Stacey is the New York Times, USA Today, and internationally best-selling author of A Flicker in the Dark and All the Dangerous Things. Stacey earned her BA in magazine journalism from the University of Georgia and her MFA in writing from the Savannah College of Art and Design. Before turning to fiction, she was a copywriter and brand strategist for various marketing agencies. Her books are being translated into over 30 languages. Stacy lives in Charleston, South Carolina with her husband, Britt, and Labradoodle, Mako, where she is always working on her next book. Welcome, Stacy. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to talk about this book. Okay. Before I delve into all the incredible things, and you can see where I've tabbed, like I like to make yeah. tabs of all my favorite spots. Um, before I um, dive in, please tell our listeners about All the Dangerous Things. Yes. So All the Dangerous Things is my second book out uh, January 10th, 2023. And it tells the story of Isabel Drake, who is a mother who wakes up one morning to find herself living in her own worst nightmare. Her toddler son, Mason, has disappeared out of his crib in the middle of the night. So like any mother, she um, it rocks her world, and she's determined to find him and figure out what happened to him. But unfortunately, the case quickly goes cold. There's um, hardly any evidence left behind. There are no leads, no suspects. So she dedicates her life to um, really doing anything she can to find answers, which includes kind of traveling around this true crime circuit and getting up on stage and... Um, and speaking to true crime enthusiasts to try and to keep his case alive and um, get people to, to keep from forgetting. And um, to add another layer of complexity to that, because Mason disappeared when she was asleep, she develops a pretty severe form of insomnia. So one day when she's traveling around, she comes in contact with a true crime podcaster who gives her a pretty interesting proposition. Um, so she starts to work with him, but his that get a little personal paired with her sleep deprived mind starts uh, dredging up some memories that she, um, you know, maybe doesn't want to recall. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> exactly. And then there's, right. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, yep. And she does, I mean, she really has created like in her living room, you know, she and her husband, as in many of these cases are separated, right? I mean, marriages very often don't survive that kind of trauma. Um, and, you know, and she has this board, she's literally taken over her, her living room wall with just this, you know, every single person in her neighborhood, every suspect she can come with, mm -hmm. up with, every sort of case that could possibly be related. And she's, yeah, she's obsessed, which, I mean, we would be, of course, there's no question. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's taken over her life. And as you said, she doesn't sleep, which, you know, we, we know just from, you know, minor periods of insomnia for one reason or another is really, really hard on uh, the oh, mind. Yeah. 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 And it, you know, it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's that classic, like she won't rest until she finds him. So she can't bring herself to waste any second. Um, but on the other hand, because he went missing when she was asleep, she kind of has this 
you know, she tries to sleep. Her husband's like, come on, like, you need to get some sleep. You need to get your rest. And every time she gets in bed and closes her eyes, she kind of sees him there. So it, um, right, right. yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And, um, she also feels very alone, you know, the public, um, points fingers at her and the, the police are clearly a little distrusting. And I think there's something right. about that feeling of being alone paired with being awake at 3 a.m. when everyone else is asleep, that kind of amplifies it for her. Right. And I want to, I really want to talk about this because there's a, a um, there's a wonderful point in the, in your author's note, and I'm, I'm not giving anything away because you do clearly say to us, don't read the author's note until, yeah. <laughs> um, until you read the book. But there's this thing you say, which is, um, you know, mothers and honestly, women in general are conditioned from birth to feel guilty about something. We mm -hmm. always think things are our fault. We always feel the need to apologize for being too little or too much, too loud or too quiet, too driven or too content for wanting children more than anything or for even not wanting them at all. And I sort of, I, I have to say, I, I got shiver when I, shivers when I read that and I have shivers right now reading it out loud because this is one of the reasons I started this podcast was to talk, unpack these sort of very expressly female things. So mm -hmm. talk to us about that. Like what, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Where does that, where does that freaking come from? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know where that comes from, but I, when I, when I came up with the idea of this book and it's hard to almost, it's hard to talk about the idea of this book because I don't want to give away any spoilers. Right. And that part of the author's note is spoiler free, but the author's note is packed full of spoilers. So yes, don't yeah. read it, don't if, you read it. <laughs> read it if you haven't read the book yet. Right. But I think when I was coming up with the idea of all the dangerous things, I was, and so when I started writing it, I was 29. So I, you know, I was on the cusp of my 30th birthday. And of course you're thinking about kids and things like that. I've, you know, I've been married for five years and, and a lot of my friends and family members were getting into that area of life where they were deciding if they want kids or if they don't want kids and um, if they're going to work full time or if they're going to stay home. And, and that no matter what choice someone made in someone else's eyes, it was the wrong choice. And there was no one single choice that you could make that would be universally accepted by everybody. It was, you know, the whole like, yeah, I want to have kids immediately. And then people would say, oh, what a shame. You're not going to focus on your career or I don't want to have kids. And, you know, someone would say, oh, that's not, that's not very maternal or you know, I want to work full time. Oh, your kids are going to be raised by a nanny or I want to be a stay at home mom. Oh, what a waste of potential. You know, it's just nobody could make the right decision. And I think when I was thinking about writing a book about motherhood and deciding for myself, you know, when I was ready to have kids and what I was going to do, it just kind of struck me um, that women are get blamed for everything. And then we internalize that and feel guilty for everything. And I wanted to just kind of into that phenomenon with this book and focus on a woman, a mother, suffers a horrible loss and she blames herself for it um, because everyone else is kind of blaming her too, because that's what people do. They just kind of blame the mother. And um, yeah. so that was a big part of the inspiration behind the book, which is why I wanted to also call it out in the author's note. Yeah. Well, and the other thing about it is, you know, we talk about that. That is exactly right. Women, there is no, there's, and it's not just that there's sort of no right answer. It's that we real. there's a lot of vitriol that goes behind women making the wrong. I mean, you remember there's a sort of famous Oprah where it's like the working moms versus the stay-at-home moms, and they are brutal to one another. Mm. It's yeah, like you're yeah. ruining your child's life by working. You are ruining 
you know, your life by staying at home. And this never applies to a man. If you think yeah, about oh, like, no. oh, you know, a man says, I'm not, you know, I don't want kids. It's like, okay, he doesn't want kids, but a woman who doesn't want children is unnatural. And it is right. it, it's so interesting and so backwards. And women, I think are actually quite hard on one another about it. It's not a lot of that judgment. I don't think comes from men. Right. I mean, I think a lot of it is really amongst us because I think there's an insecurity in each of us. Like if I have kids, am I messing something up? If I don't have kids, am I messing something up? If I go to work, you know, all that, all that. So right. I guess the question that comes out of this is how does it make you feel about motherhood yourself? You have really unpacked some stuff here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I also mentioned in the author's note, I don't yet have kids. So I, right. I felt a lot of hesitation about writing a book about motherhood and making some of these strong statements because I don't have kids. There's a lot that I can't understand about it. Um, and one day, but you know, I'm, I'm in one, of, I'm kind of in that camp where, you know, of course I want them, but I'm, I, I love my career. I'm very busy. I'm happy the way, you know, my life is right now. So who knows when it'll happen one day. Um, you know, I think doing the research for this book and writing this book just gave me a whole nother level of appreciation for mothers. Um, just the things that they put up with the, uh, heavy, heavy emotions they deal with every day, the just level of exhaustion, both from sleep deprivation, but also from just putting their life on hold for another human being and, and putting another human being before themselves. So in a funny way, even though I dig into a lot of the um, tough to read aspects of motherhood, it, it did make me excited to experience all the good things too. Um, my, my sister just had a baby. So I'm a first time aunt right now. Uh, I he, saw that on Instagram. Yeah. Adorable. That's fun. That's a good oh, way I'm to in love with him. Yeah. I'm in love with him. He's a month old. And um, yeah. I, you know, ever since I've been spending some time with him, I've kind of been thinking, you know, if I love my nephew this much, I can't even imagine what, what loving my own kid will feel like. So um, I think it's just important to be honest, you know, it's, there's a lot of wonderful things about motherhood, but there's a lot of, uh, bad, you know, bad emotions too, that, um, those are the things that people don't feel comfortable talking about, but if you don't talk about them, how do you know they're normal? And then how do you, how do you deal with them when they happen to you? There's so much shame. In fact, I had a really nice conversation with Jillian McAllister about her book, wrong, uh, wrong time, wrong, wrong place. Mm -hmm. place, wrong time. Um, and she was really at that point pregnant. I mean, we, she, we, she didn't say that on the interview, but that is true. And I think the normalization of these hard emotions is actually at the very key to any of us feeling okay with yeah. that stuff. Cause it is, it, it's, it's totally true. It happens to every single mother, those moments of like, you know, what am I doing? And the very dark moments, which you talk about, which are a little bit like, I mean, it is, there is sort of a psychosis that happens when you're really sleep deprived that th you think, I just want this baby to sleep. And I would almost yeah. do anything to make the baby sleep. And I have, yeah. you know, my, my kids are now 22 and 20. So I can say this, you know, there's a moment where you're like, I'm, I'm just going to put this pillow over your face and then you'll sleep, which is, you're not going to do that really, but it right. is. Well, yeah, right? I, I had actually heard that from someone. Um, I was talking to a, a close friend. This was a couple of years ago when I was first starting to write the book. And I, you know, we have a very open relationship and we can talk to each other about things, which is great. But she made a comment of like, it's just scary. Like it, it's the middle of the night, you're exhausted. They will not stop crying. And right. she was like, I just had this moment where I had to put her down and walk away because I was a little afraid of what I might do if I did. Absolutely. And, and I just thought like, wow, that was very honest. I'm yeah. Sure everyone feels that, but nobody, yeah. everyone 
feels too guilty to say that, you know? Because and, in the light of day, it's a horrifying thought, right? Yeah. But at that yeah. moment, and actually that was the best advice I got from, from new mothers was, you know, the baby will not hurt him or herself by crying. They just won't. So when you just get to your wits end, you just close the door, put them in their crib, close the door, and you go somewhere you, like with earplugs and you just sleep, like you got to sleep, right? They'll be cool down. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just, you know, you're not, and it, but that is also that there's something. And of course, because you grow, you know, I, most of us grow the baby too. There is such a biological connection that it feels like you can't walk away. You know, it feels right. It's a very, uh, it's a very sort of, it's a universal, but also universally isolating experience that yeah that's I, uh, a line I had in the author's note said just that too everyone you know every woman who chooses to have a child experiences that but it's so isolating and how interesting is that that something that's universally experienced is is so feels so lonely um it's so lonely it's so interesting yeah. exactly because you know we almost should come together like intense you know, or like in like a sort of like a red tent situation for newborns. And you mm -hmm. just would come with like everybody who had a baby sort of within a couple of weeks and share the sort of like insanity of that because, you know, there's, it's, you go from sort of, you know, zero to 60 on the whole yeah. thing. And I, I remember thinking, you know, you go to that prenatal, you know, the, the class where you learn to deliver your baby. And I mean, I did the sort of prenatal classes and it was like, all of that was about, the time when you actually give birth, which can be really long, right? It can be 70 hours or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what about like everything after that? And then, mm -hmm. you know, when you're giving birth, there's people around, but when you're not, you know, after that, you're alone. So I was like, this yeah, backwards. This is not how we should be doing this. Right. right. Yeah. We should be, we should be flipping this around. So um, one of the other things I, I loved um, is, you know, and this is true of Flicker in the Dark, too. You are drawn. Uh, to families with sort of dark secrets, right? And dark, yeah. in, uh, you know, and I noticed in your acknowledgements that you thank your parents and tell them that your, yeah. interest, <laughs> your interest in dysfunctional families has nothing to do with them, which I think that's most of the suspense writers say that to their parents, right? So yeah. where do you think, where does that interest come from? What, what appeals to you? So that's a good question. I, yeah, and yeah, I feel like every time I give my parents a draft of one of my books, I have to give both them and myself a little pep talk and just be like, look, it's not you. <laughs> like, I had a great childhood. <laughs> but right. I think it's it's something about the fact that we can't choose our families. Like, there's so much in life that we can choose. And, you know, if you have a dysfunctional friendship or an issue at work or a dysfunctional marriage, like do choose those things and it can be tough to get out of course but you choose them and you you could get out but your family you can't choose them and even if you kind of excommunicate yourself you're still attached by blood you can't leave them completely so I think there's something about dysfunctional families that interests me because if you're born into one kind of just the hand you're dealt and so how do you deal with it how do you deal with the the secrets that they keep or the dysfunction or if there's a bad person in your family how do you separate yourself from that how how then do you view yourself being right. um you know sharing their dna how does it affect the way you grow up and the decisions you make when you're older i just find it very very fascinating plus you're in that like at the most sort of important developmental time of your life right mm -hmm. you're born into them it's that first 18 years when we learn all of our things so if you're with somebody who's dangerous or, or abusive then that is, you know, instilled in you when you're still very 
impressionable. So right. that is. And as a child, you, you know, you know, all you know is what you know, and you don't know if it's unusual until you get older. And so I think it's kind of interesting too. Um, all the dangerous things goes back and forth between a present day storyline and a past storyline. And when you're at that, uh, you know, a young age and there's kind of weird stuff going on in your family, you have no idea if that's normal. And then when you grow up, you can kind of look back and think, wow, that wasn't, that wasn't normal, but how would you know at age eight, you know? Um, right. So I, yeah, I, I like unpacking all that stuff. I've promised my family I'll write, <laughs> write a book of not about dysfunctional families at some point. I don't, but... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I would, don't make that promise too soon because, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you do it beautifully and you, you know, and your writing of course is, is gorgeous, but you unpack, um, you know, this is a real, it's a wonderful exploration of these situations because in many ways, you know, her family is dysfunctional, but not, not uber dysfunctional, right? Yeah. They're not like, there's nobody, there's not like the police aren't showing up, you know, because mm -mm. there's, you know, people are drinking too much and abusing, you know, hitting one another. So it's just, it's, it's actually interesting because I think every family is a little dysfunctional, right? Oh, I yeah. mean, every family is a little dysfunctional. Every child grows up a little differently, right? You, you grow up with the same parents, but you know, whether or not there's another sibling in the house. So it's, mm -hmm. it, that's another sort of lonely aspect of, of being, you know, of a family, right? Even if you're the first born or the fourth born, your life, your experience is very different. Yeah, that is true. And it, that kind of reminds me two similarities between a flicker in the dark and all the dangerous things are kind of the, the protagonist, Chloe and Isabel looking back on their childhood and having it be happy. I mean, they have happy memories um in a flicker in the dark it's my my debut about the daughter of a serial killer she has she looks back on her childhood with her father and she has happy memories i mean she enjoyed having him as a dad so she's trying to unpack how she could have missed right. all these red flags and in all the dangerous things it's it's sort of similar um isabel had a happy childhood and it didn't seem overtly dysfunctional but when she looks back on certain things she she tries to think like gosh how did i miss that or how did i not realize right. that wasn't normal and i think that's interesting is not having overt dysfunction but just kind of little things here and there that, that right. you can look back on with clarity and that's what i love that about a flicker in the dark that you can absolutely love a you know a serial i mean a serial you can absolutely love somebody who it turns out did did some really horrific things right yeah and 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 in the same way i think when you're young too you don't look at something there's no perspective right it takes yeah leaving and coming back to look at something with perspective and i i think that's true of both of these books as well is you just don't mm -hmm. have as a kid you don't have any perspective so yeah yeah exactly um, so there, you know, I, as I mentioned, I tag all these um, places, they're all these um, lovely books. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of beginning of the very opening of the book, yeah. right? Because it it's, it's sort of, she's, she's at this place where she's going to give a, um, a talk to these true crime junkies. And I love the way you describe, there's like a, a t-shirt that has like, a, it says red wine and true crime. And the, um, you know, the, the tea is a gun. Um, yeah. And, and this is a strangely sort of, it, it's, there are men there, but it's a mostly female phenomenon. Um, and mm -hmm. you mentioned sort of the younger women uh, who look a little embarrassed, like they've been, you know, caught watching, <laughs> looking at porn. And it's yeah. so true. Um, the interest that has a tinge of something dirty. What What do you make of this obsession? It's tough. I get he in a lot of ways writing this book was sort of my attempt at trying to understand that why are we so obsessed with true crime? And you know, I'm guilty myself. I'm clearly interested in true crime. I mean, I watch I watch true crime documentaries. I read true crime books and there is a little bit of embarrassment there because it's kind of like 
why am I interested in this? It's kind of sick, you know? And so, but at the same time, everyone else is interested in it too. I mean, you can tell yeah. from these conventions exist and people yeah. go to them and, you know, shows like Dahmer are the most watched show on Netflix. I mean, clearly it's a yeah. phenomenon shared by so many, but I personally struggle. And I think a lot of people do with like the ethical issues that right. are in play. And, um, you know, what is it, is it ethical to consume a true crime story? Are you, you know, exploiting or doing damage to the families? This is, you know, someone's tragedy that you're watching really for your own entertainment as you sit on your couch at night. And is that okay? Like, is it okay to watch that stuff? I don't, I don't know. And so um, that was making Isabel kind of do the true crime circuit was kind of my attempt at trying to understand what it would feel like to be on the opposite end of that. So here we are safe in our homes, you know, watching Dateline. What would it be like to be the person being interviewed? You know, the person right. who lived through the tragedy. And um, in, in Isabel's mind, it's kind of this necessary evil because on the one hand, she hates standing up there. She hates the people looking at her and clearly they're there because they think it's fun and it's entertaining, right. but it's, you know, she, she kind of hates herself for being up there and, and playing into this craze. But at the same time, she knows that it can be helpful. Like it, it could, you know, cold cases have been solved from podcasts and things like right. that. And, and the true crime community, they can keep a case alive if they're interested enough in it. So um, yeah, it's tough. I don't know if I have a, an, an answer as to why people no. are interested in it or if it's yeah. okay or if it's not. It's so complicated. But um, I just thought it would be a unique perspective looking yeah, it, at it through the eyes of someone on the other side. Yeah, I do wonder too if it's a way for, you know, because it's. I do have this curiosity that it is so predominantly female. And mm -hmm. the statistics say that we're so much more interested. And part of me wonders if it's, you know, if it's a way for us to sort of feel safe. We think if we mm -hmm. see all the ways in which women, because it's usually women, you know, so many of the victims are also female. If we see right. all the ways in which women are, you know, attacked or, um, you know, you know, killed, then maybe we can sort of, you know, avoid, I mean, which of course is, is not true, but it, it may give us that sense, right? It may give us a sense yeah. of security. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely that. I think for me, I'm so um, curious. I'm curious about, you know, why bad people do bad things, like what their motivations are. So it's exactly that. If, if I'm curious and I can maybe glean some understanding, it can help me avoid that situation happening to me or, you know, it, which is, is completely, it's not the way it works, <laughs> but that, that absolutely might have it doesn't do it. doesn't prevent us from thinking maybe right yeah and I think um you know and the thing also about her getting up there isn't even you know there's a difference between a lot of these cases it's like the body is found and you know the the, the parents have had an opportunity to, to bury their child um and here she is not only you know trying to keep the case alive but her her son is isn't you know she hasn't found him right yeah everybody's telling her he's probably dead right because it's you know it's been a long time right it's almost it's a year um yeah. and it's like you know but of course how do you how do you ever give up hope as a parent yeah well and I think that's another interesting dynamic I enjoyed unpacking it's kind of the differences between and this is a blanket statement so I don't want to say the differences between men and women but specifically I guess between Isabel and her husband Ben how they deal with a tragedy right. um because they have two completely different coping mechanisms. Isabel cannot let it go. I mean, she is, 
she's you know she hasn't slept in a year she's traveling around to these true crime conferences trying to find answers whereas her husband ben he hasn't let it go but he's listening to the logic the you know police officers saying he's he's probably dead at this point it'll be remains you need to make peace with it and he can't understand why she is acting so irrationally she can't understand how he's just accepted it you know and that's what ultimately drives them apart is their the fact that they deal with the same tragedy in two completely different ways i find that interesting because um my husband and i are kind of similar like i overanalyze things and over like even if it's out of my control i I obsess over it whereas he is like it's out of my control there's nothing i can do about it and it's it's just two completely different ways of thinking that can um I, i find that interesting like one shared experience and two different ways of dealing with it right and when the experience is so you know major and traumatic then of course that it does drive a wedge and both Mm -hmm. I mean and actually both reactions are reasonable right I mean both Mm -hmm. reactions like you know you can see how in Ben's perspective it's like this is just going to make us crazy the rest of our lives unless we can sort of figure out a way to move past it and he really tries to help Isabel do that but she um you know and and of course I understand her perspective too because if it was my child I don't imagine I would be able to let it go. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I would let it go. Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I I agree. I can see both sides of it. And um, you mentioned Isabel's little board that she keeps up. You know, she has pictures of neighbors and um, you know, contact information and and uh, newspaper clippings. And when Ben um goes into their house, it's like this reminder of the worst thing that's ever happened to him. Just tacked up on the wall and Isabel knows that you know that's why he couldn't live in that house anymore he just couldn't do it and you I can understand that you can understand both sides for sure absolutely um and you know so the other thing I want to talk about is the sleepwalking because I think that's super you know it's it's funny so actually it's funny that when I read it when I was reading about that so Isabel uh used to sleepwalk which I guess is quite common in 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 Mm -hmm. young people and in fact my sister my younger sister um would did sleepwalk when she was probably like nine or ten and she actually one time let herself out of a a lake house we had rented and walked down to the beach and fell asleep or woke up on the rocks and my mother started crying my mother found her there which and that's terrifying right that's terrifying yeah it's terrifying and I I, it's funny because I always thought about it from the perspective of my mom who was terrified because the water was so close I mean she could swim but I don't know what happens when you're sleepwalking so anyway yeah um but I didn't think about it from the perspective of the sleepwalker, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, it was it's terrifying for Isabel too. How did you do, you know, the research for that? Yeah, so I I actually have a funny little story about the inspiration behind this book. I can share it quickly. So yes. I, um, I am not, I'm, I wouldn't call myself an insomniac, but I have a hard time falling asleep. I mean, it takes me a while. I'm one of those people that I get in bed and I close my eyes and then my my mind just kind of, runs wild (laughs) and my husband on the is total opposite he falls asleep in like five seconds and he's just he's asleep and um sometimes he sleeps so deeply he'll talk in his sleep he just kind of like mumbles little things here and there Mm -hmm. it's nothing super coherent but uh one night I was laying awake and he was asleep and he sat up straight in bed his eyes were wide open and he turned on the light and I was like, what are you doing? Why are you turning on the light? And he said, she needs to see where she's going. 
you just said that in his sleep. And I was like, what? And so I like shook him awake and I was like, who needs to see where she's going? What are you talking about? And he had no idea. You know, he must've been dreaming, but his eyes were open. He said it, he turned on the light. I mean, his body was acting in a way that his mind was not consciously controlling. And um, so later that night, you know, he falls back asleep. I'm wide awake. Cause I'm like, oh, right. God, that was weird. <laughs> and I started thinking about interesting it is that you know insomnia and deep deep sleep if they go too far in either direction could cause a serious problem and they're kind of opposites of one another so on the one hand if you're such an insomniac that you're not sleeping for days weeks months a year in Isabel's case you kind of start to lose control of your mind whereas deep sleep to the point where you're talking or even walking in your sleep you're losing control of your body and I wanted to know which would be scarier if you mm -hmm. have lost control of your mind or if you've lost control of your body or in Isabel's case, if you're kind of suffering from both. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the initial inspiration. And then I started to do a, lo a lot of uh, research on sleepwalking, like, you know, what part of the brain it affects. And um, there's a real case of a man named uh, I believe his name is Kenneth Parks who um murdered his uh I believe it was his father-in-law in his sleep and um he was found not guilty because he was asleep and um <sighs> I just went down a lot of rabbit holes I'll bet you <laughs> Which, did yeah yeah reading about all these bizarre things people have done in their sleep and, and apparently don't remember the next morning so interesting so was that the original seed for the story or was was it sort of the idea of, you know, can you recall, I mean, that's, it's like an impossible question, right? Because usually it's a few seeds and they kind of mm. clump together, but can you remember? The original seed? Um, yeah, it was, it was, you're right. It's, it's a few different things. Um, one of them was very much wanting to explore motherhood and kind of being locked inside the mind of a sleep deprived mother who was blaming herself for what happened to her son. And then the other one was, um, was yeah i mean what would it be like to be basically what would be worse losing control of your mind or losing control of your body like if you're awake but you're exhausted you can't trust your thoughts and your memories if you're asleep and you're moving around you can't trust your actions and right what would be worse um right and i, I don't know what would be worse honestly i've never slept walked either but <laughs> they're both bad it seems like they're yeah. both really bad um yeah, we've been sleep deprived, but we haven't slept. And I, I hear you about the brain. So being active, I think that might be a writer thing, right? It's like you stop moving and all of a sudden your brain kicks in. Um, are you somebody who keeps yeah. like, you know, do you get up and work? Do you keep a notebook by your bed? How do you, uh, yeah, what do, you do with I those have, sleeplessness? I not to get out of bed and like open my laptop or else I'm going to be there for hours. But I do, I think a lot of times when I'm laying in bed and I can't sleep, I'm thinking about my book. I'm picking yeah. apart like a plot hole that's bothering me, or I'm, if I'm stuck, I'm, I'm thinking about how I'm going to make it work. Um, or I'll come up with a story idea that I think is pretty cool. And I keep it all in the notes app of my phone. Um, Cause it's just right there. So I, I always right. grab my phone and I just jot something down and then it's, it's there for me the next morning, but yeah, I have to write it down or else I'll, I'll forget it the next morning. Right. You think, oh, this is so brilliant. There's no way I'll forget it. I will absolutely remember it in the morning and then yeah. nothing in the morning. And then it's gone. Yeah. It's totally gone. So tell us about a little bit about your process. Are you, uh, you know, do you know the story you start to finish? Are you sort of a 
How does that work for you? Yeah. Yeah. And also I apologize if you can hear my dog barking. I knew that would happen at some point. <laughs> That's fine. Hi, Mako. Mako. Yeah. My, my dogs are here too, but they can't hear him. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So my, um, my process, I, I know at least one twist, but I don't, I don't, I don't outline. I, I guess I consider myself more of a pantser. Um, so I know I have my big idea, kind of that seed, like we were talking about. And then I have a twist that I, that I, for me, that I think makes the story worth exploring. So if I have the seed, but I don't have any kind of shocking ending, it's hard for me to get excited enough to sit down and write it. But once I have an ending in mind, I feel more confident that I can make the story itself something really, something really cool that will have a satisfying ending. Um, and then I just kind of sit down and figure out the middle. So every day when I sit down and work, I don't know what I'm going to put on the page that day, but at least I have like the finish line in sight. So I know where I'm trying to take it. Um, inevitably during the editing process, quite a lot changes. And um, Interesting. yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes when I sit down and write the characters, will reveal things to me that I didn't really think of myself. And so I, I leave myself open to the ending changing or, you know, at least morphing a little bit. Usually another twist or two comes to me as I'm writing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I like the flexibility that provides, but I know I'm not doing myself any favors when it comes to editing because it takes me yeah. a long time to edit. <laughs> it is interesting. I mean, I'm the same and I, I have tried, I've never successfully outlined and, you know, I'm on book 17 or something. So I, I yeah. think though it's, it's a, it's a time, it's a, it's a time consuming process, but I do yeah. think there's some magic to the, you know, I love when you say that my characters surprise me because that is really what they're doing, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's you, but it's, it's not you. Um, and they, yeah. cause there's, there's, there's a lot of twists in this book. It's not just like one, yeah. you know, one twist. There's a lot of, and clearly those are just happening as you um, you know, as you write now, do you then do you work with a critique partner or do you write it sort of in solitude? How do you do that? I, I write the first draft in solitude. I have a really hard time sharing my work with people. Um, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I think a lot of authors are, but just, you know, if it's not, you know, first drafts just aren't great and I know it's not good. And so I don't want to share it with people, but at a certain point you need to let people read it. Um, Mostly I just need space away, you know? So the the couple of weeks I, I let it go and let people read it is my time to just like separate myself from the story and think about something else. Um, so I write the first draft in solitude and then I usually give it to my parents and my sister. They're still my uh, go-to uh, alpha readers. I and love it. Yeah, yeah. They've been, um, you know, they read all my, all my stuff before I was ever agented or published. And so I, I can trust them to give, um, give me honest feedback, even if it hurts my feelings. And uh, so then I'll get their edits and I'll kind of work them in. And then my second draft goes to my agent and we'll talk about it together. And then my third draft goes to my editor and then, you know, it goes through as many drafts as it needs to. But um, yeah, I keep it, I keep it pretty close to me. Just yeah, which is understandable. Yeah. I, I noticed you didn't put your husband on your list, and I think that's probably smart too. <laughs> yeah, he, it's funny. He's actually not a huge reader. Um, he always reads my final drafts because uh, he's, you know, very excited and very supportive. But yeah, he, I, I think it's a good idea too not to let him get the 
before it's done. <laughs> I think we're too close. <laughs> exactly. And it, yeah, and it does, it is, it's a tender spot, right? It's like pushing on a bruise when, um, when you get feedback on, on your book. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. And I have, I've done, I don't, my husband doesn't read mine because I used to let him read them even sort of in arc form. And he'd be like, wait, I'm confused. And I'd be like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> go back and reread. He's also not a, not a huge reader. So that, that makes it, that makes a difference. But, um, so now in terms of like, are you, do you brain, are you sort of in it, in it all uh, your own, not, we're not brainstorming with people just really, it's all up in Stacy's head. Pretty much. Yeah. I, um, you know, I'll ask people if there's something I'm writing about that I'm not fully, that I don't fully understand. Of course, I'll, I'll reach out and talk to people. Like I'm trying to think, um, with all the dangerous things, you know, not being a mother, I was talking to my friends and family who are to try and make sure I was getting the emotions right and asking about certain experiences and, you know, is this believable? Would this actually happen? But I try to keep it vague because I don't want to give away any major plot points or twists before people can read it because I think for me the most valuable feedback is getting people's true authentic reactions when they read it the first time like I want to know if they're guessing the twists or when they start suspecting something or um when they put the book down and they feel bored you know like I wanted that's the stuff I want to know well, that um, didn't happen. That does not happen. Not that has not happened in my oh, William experience. So thank you. Well, um, you read the final draft, so that's true. That's true. That's yeah. true. And I know Dan uh, Conway is your uh, agent. He's a lovely um, human. I know him a little bit from writer functions. So it's yeah. nice to have somebody. Then he he's got uh, you're sending to him before to your editor, so you get a sort of whole different um, editorial process. Yeah. Yeah, he used to be an editor uh, himself, I believe at HarperCollins. So he has a heavy editing uh, experience, which when I when I signed with him with A Flicker in the Dark was hugely um, helpful to me because that was my debut and, and I needed help. I didn't know what I was doing. So he was able to help me edit A Flicker in the Dark quite a bit before we took it out um, and, and sold it. And that's just kind of the the habit that we've fallen into since is I just I trust him and his um instinct so much I let him read it first and he'll just kind of tell me what he thinks and then and then I'll send it off to the wider team it's it's just kind of like one more alpha reader yeah um, that I trust yeah and it isn't as though you send it to your editor and then they say change it all back to you know his feedback is obviously really valuable right yeah it's making the book a better book and that's that's never that's obviously and it's so there's a really it's like you said, there's, you can only read a book for the first time once. Mm-hmm. And after that, the twists, they can't be surprising anymore. Right. It, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's exactly, I think that's why I keep it so close. And I try to really limit who I let read it because I want those initial reactions from as many people as I can get. And if I let, you know, 20 people read the first draft and it's, it's bad. I've, I've ruined that. You know, I've ruined that moment for them and I'll never be able to replicate it. They'll always know what the twist is going to be. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty private with my books, but yeah. And it's working obviously. Yeah. Congratulations <laughs> on book, uh, book of the month for Thank all you. Dangerous things. That's super exciting. And also for flicker in the dark. And, yeah. um, so, okay. So, um, I want to just double back one more thing you said that I thought was really interesting. And I think it's useful. We have um, a fair number of our listeners, I think, are aspiring um, authors as well, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you mentioned, like, you know, the, that your family had read the things that, that happened before Flicker in the Dark. Yeah. I think people like to hear, people imagine, right, 
oh no, she had her first book and it was, you know, it hit the times and, and, you know, it's a book of the month and she's hugely successful and she probably wrote nothing before that. <laughs> Not <laughs> true. true. Right. <laughs> yeah. So tell us what happened. What, what came before that? What was your, what yeah. were the processes of publication? Yeah. So I, you know, admittedly, everyone's process is different and admittedly mine, I, I do think was fairly quick, but I did have a, a failed first book before a flicker in the dark. So I, it took me, I would say right after I, I graduated college, I realized I wanted to write fiction and I didn't really know what I was doing. So I decided I had a book idea and I decided to sit down and write it. And it took me about three years to write the first draft. And, um, you know, I was writing it before work and over my lunch break and over the weekends, you know, this is what, what you have to do. And, um, right. and I let my parents read it and my sister and they loved it. You know, of course they were like, oh yeah, it's going to get published. And then I spent two years trying to get an agent and I got rejected by 115 of them. So, I'm, okay. That is so good. <laughs> Thank you for telling yeah. us that because I think people need to hear that, right? 115. That's a lot. That's good a lot. Yeah. Thank you. I was determined. I mean, I was like, come on, like, I, I'm gonna do it. But at a certain point, I had gone through truly every literary agency in New York, multiple agents at each agency. I have a I still have it this Excel sheet where I would yeah. put their contact information and, you know, I, I would color code it like if I sent it and I was waiting to hear back, it would be yellow. If they asked for a full manuscript, it would be green. And then when they rejected it, they it would turn red. And it's yeah. truly 115 rows of red. And uh, oh. yeah, so um, good for you. So Persistence. Was, Persistence is yeah. a huge part of this. Oh, yes, absolutely. That's I do believe that, um, you know, it's to think about how many good books you know people it's tough it, it, there's a lot of rejection in this industry and I easily I was tempted to quit after weathering 115 rejections but you know if I did a flicker in the dark never would have happened and that's kind of where it all changed so um so yeah at a certain point I just kind of realized this isn't the book that's that's going to get published and that's fine you know and um so I wrote a flicker in the dark it took me about a year and a half to write that one. So half the time. Um, and then I, I, I signed with Dan in about three weeks. So it happened much faster <laughs> the second time around. Yes. Good for you. Well, and I think that's right. So do you look at that, that first book now and say, oh, I understand why this didn't. Yeah, or do you yeah, think you want to, will you bring it, it, will it, you know, come back? I don't think I'll bring it back. I thought about it uh, originally because I got a Flicker in the Dark was a, a two book deal. So where um, I sold Flicker and then I had another book that I was supposed to write. And I remember I told Dan, I was like, I have this other book that I, I have, I've already written. And um, we kind of read the first couple chapters together and both agreed that I hadn't mastered my style or not mastered, but I didn't know my style yet. I didn't yeah. quite understand the types of stories I like to write. It was very much just like a practice novel. Um, you it, have it to is, have those. Yeah. You yeah. have to have a practice novel. I do, And it is, it is kind of funny to look back on how different they are. That very first one was written in third person. And clearly I now really enjoy writing in first. I like getting yeah. really in the mind of my characters. Um, yeah. That first one was also set in Chicago. So it was like very cold and snowy and gray. And now all my books are set in the South where it's hot and humid and muggy. So it, it was just, I was figuring it out. And I think there was, you know, it was just a book. It was a cool story, but I, it wasn't written the way I, I typically write yeah. my books because I didn't know how to do that yet. 
No, and the fact that you figured it out with one book is actually quite impressive. It took me, it was my fourth book that sold. So I, yeah. um, you know, I think that's, I think that is, that you have to feel really good about that. And of course, the fact that A Flicker in the Dark has done so well. Um, and mm. then we talked for a moment before we started recording about sort of the fear of the sophomore book, right? There's this, mm. everybody always says, oh, you know, sophomore slump. And and I can, uh, I, I want to be here to attest that there is no sophomore slump happening here. <laughs> and I you. love Flicker in the Dark. I think, you know, I think this is, I might even love this one more. Um, oh, so, yay, thank you. So it's so, so, so exciting. And I love, I do love your Southern, you know, um, I, you're, you're in Charleston and I, um, I love Charleston. It's such an incredible city yeah. with all its um, strange history and mm -hmm. the buildings with the little, you know, the little things that say when they were built or they survived the earthquake or whatever. What, is, yeah. what are those things? Um, there's, a, I, there's a bunch of different yeah. things. I mean, it's a very old city, so there's a ton of history here. Um, it's you know writing about the south i i love it it's fascinating because it is it's there's a lot of history and a lot of southern cities are considered haunted which i find kind of fun to explore um mm -hmm. all the dangerous things is set in savannah specifically which is yes supposed to be the most haunted city in america so i had fun doing some research with that too yeah because her house her house is like a historical home the home she goes up mm -hmm. in is a is a historical home and, the, and there is yeah. the idea that you know if you live in a house that's really old somebody may have died there which is we don't have that a lot in newer homes right yeah yeah it's yeah um isabel's childhood home was it's in beaufort <clears throat> excuse me south carolina and was um basically converted into a hospital for uh union soldiers during the war and um that there are quite a few houses in beaufort where that's actually their history and so there's a moment in the book where she's kind of thinking about you know there's a lot of people who died in here and like what happened to them you know where are their bodies right. they could be in the backyard where she's playing with her little sister every day and um there's you know all these old um cemeteries in the south where the tombstones are just uh, they're hundreds of years old you know so there's right. just there's a lot of history and there's a lot of death which i yes. find um kind of creepy to to unpack oh it's so fun and isn't that like i want to just like more accolades your way which is that that's such a small part of the book that I, the, the, the home that was, you know, a hospital at one point, and yet you so be, you beautifully draw that and all it does is add another sort of lovely atmospheric level to Isabel's past and to the book. And that's, you know, you. wherever that came from is, you know, that's gorgeous. So that's, thank you. And, and brilliant. So, um, anyway, I love this book. I devoured it. Thank I, you. I, I tabbed so many spots um and um and i think you did a motherhood of you know real justice which you know like you said as a non-mother you were nervous thank you i i really do appreciate that and i you know caring from readers is is the best part of this job because writing a book is so solitary so when you finally get to talk to people who have read it, it it feels so good and i think it has been talking to mothers and women who have young kids who enjoyed the book but also resonated with it and appreciated yeah. some of the um some of the the things I said has been the best part because I was very nervous I mean I don't know if there was a moment where I wasn't sure if I would write it just because I was like oh this is such a heavy topic and I don't want to do it wrong you know but I yeah. just felt you know like I said at, at the time when I wrote it approaching 30 that was just on my mind and it felt like the story I wanted to tell but there was a lot of, of fear of doing it wrong so um 
I'm really no, I mean, happy it, to hear that. And my kids are way past the stage, you know, 20 years past it. And it's still, yeah. it still resonates because I don't think you really, that's, you know, it's a little bit like scar tissue. I think it's always there right. which you have, have survived that. So anyway, I thought you did a beautiful job and, and I hope you. you get, you know, you, you hope you get really lots of really positive feedback about it. Cause, Thank you. Um, and, and then I think the other thing I always like to say to people to, you know, is if you didn't like a book, people it's best just to keep that to yourself <laughs> right I know I right? know I know why tell why tell anybody we don't need to know that yeah um, the, you know the vast majority of readers if I hear from them it's positive I think most people know if you don't like it you just kind of you just kind of keep it to yourself or at the very least don't like proactively reach out and tell me you know what I mean I think right. that's don't most tell people them. get that <laughs> right right that's true I've got the only time is if you do something and it, you know they, you get the angry responses to certain types of situations like never kill an animal that's that's really oh that's yeah. yeah yeah never I, kill. yeah I don't think and why that's another thing to unpack like why do we kill humans in our books but animals are so off limits you know <laughs> it is interesting right yeah it doesn't yeah. make any sense to me either and I think it really uh I mean some people you know sometimes they deserve killing but innocent mm. people children no so, but yeah it is, yeah that's it's weird what will what readers will will where we draw the line right it's, yeah it's very weird. Okay, so tell us now. This is so exciting. This comes out. Um, I believe the podcast comes out on the twelfth. So this is Amazing. already available okay. to you when this when we when you're listening to this, you can go and get Stacey Willingham's All the Dangerous Things, which is amazing so fabulous tell us and and this is the other thing that's hard about being a writer as soon as your book is out we're like okay what's next yeah what oh my gosh i know so i am uh currently writing my third book which is it is so crazy how far in advance this stuff happens i mean i'm still promoting a flicker in the dark and actively moving into promoting all the dangerous things but i'm on my third draft of my third book already which i won't even be talking about until what 2024 <laughs> so yeah so i'm true. writing my third book um which is it's been a lot of fun but it's 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 the most different i would say uh between a flicker in the dark and all the dangerous things this one's quite different it's another psychological thriller but it is set on a college campus so it's a more of a dark academia type of um mm -hmm. story which we all love those that's mm -hmm. fabulous I love them. I love them. I really hope I can do it justice because I they're some of my favorite subgenres for sure. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm working on, and I'm hoping to get this draft sent off to my editor before uh, before the holidays. So you oh, can wow. expect that sometime next year, 2024. That's that is so exciting. Do you have a title yet? Too soon. Uh, I have a working title, but it, it yeah. will probably be changed. So yes, yeah. yes, we don't, we don't need to. Well, that's super exciting. Yeah. And I'm sure it'll be fabulous. It is, it, it's interesting though, right? Like what you're experiencing is that every book is like, oh God, here we go again. I'm starting again. Yeah, right? it is. So, you know, it's funny. We were talking about the, the sophomore slump earlier and I was so nervous about that. And um, I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good about all the dangerous things because it's been out with book of the month and I'm getting pretty good feedback. But of course now I have that anxiety for my third book. I'm like, oh God, I hope people like it. Like, I don't know if this will ever go away <laughs> or if this is I just mean, the life of a writer. I think it might be Sandra Brown. I had, listen, I talked to Sandra Brown and she was saying that every single book, she's got like 88 New York Times bestsellers. And she's like, every time I start a book, I think, can I do this? Yeah. Well, so at I least think, that's normal because I feel yes. the same way. You you sit down and it's like, did I forget how to do this? Like, did I just like, was I unconscious when I wrote that those other ones? Because I can't remember how to do it. They all feel equally as daunting for some reason. Yeah, and that's probably a sign that you're writing something really fabulous, right? Is that it's oh, daunting. thank you. 
Yeah. So I'm really sorry. Well, listen, I, I'm so grateful to have had you visit today. Um, everybody, if you haven't read The Flicker in the Dark, that's a, that was a book of the month um, club. And I love that you can go back mm-hmm. on your book of the month and add, do an add-on. So you can go and add on A Flicker yeah, in the yeah. Dark if you didn't grab it the first time. And then this month, December, which is where we are now, All the Dangerous Things is in the book of the month. And then, of course, it'll be available everywhere um, on January 10th. So congratulations again. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us. Yes. Thank you, Danielle. I appreciate it. Of course. Everybody, this is Killer Women. Thanks for joining us today with Stacey Willingham, and we will see you next time. Bye.